Open your Bibles with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Anyone who has spent time with me knows that I'm a big fan of sports. I like to watch them as a young man. I participated in them. I benefited greatly from the lessons I learned playing sports, the lessons I get from watching sports, the things about overcoming adversity and the necessity of endurance, fighting through problems and strategies and patience and focus. There's so many important lessons that you can learn by observing sports, or at least I try to convince my wife that's why I watch and stare at the tube all day. But I'm encouraged that I have an advocate in the Apostle Paul. He was a fan of sports. If you read his writings very much, you know that he frequently incorporates images and scenes from sports into his teaching, bringing a particular focus to things like running of races and uh, all of those things and the lessons that might be acquainted with them. Paul was seemingly familiar, if not a fan somewhat of sports, and so he often would take those lessons and apply them to our own lives. Well, today we come to one of those passages that does that for us as well as anywhere, as memorably as anywhere. One of the passages that was all about athletics and the spiritual lessons that are learned there. Paul is encouraging us to look at the lessons of these athletes with a spiritual purpose. As he's doing this, you remember he's talking to a group of people who were self-centered at best, self-indulgent. They were distracted, we might say, if not downright detrimental to others. Paul had begun to address very specifically back in chapter 8 how their arrogance and pride and self-centered attitude was not only hurtful to themselves, but it was destructive to people around them. You remember in In verse 11 of chapter 8, he talked about how their knowledge, or by their knowledge, weak brothers were being destroyed, brothers for whom Christ had died. So here they were in whatever capacity, claiming to hold on to and possess some sort of knowledge, some sort of spiritual maturity and understanding, and yet by that, claiming to be mature, they were actually destroying, ruining Brothers around them, believing themselves to be wise, believing themselves to be knowledgeable. They were, in the name of guarding what they thought were their own privileged positions, and in many cases, their own deserved rights, their own luxuries and liberties, by holding on and trying to guard those things in the name of maturity, they were, in fact, destroying others. Now that leads to a rebuke by the Apostle Paul, and he gives an extensive section to that in chapter 8, but beginning in chapter 9, it's not just a rebuke. Paul begins to present himself as, a, as an example, a contrast to the way that they lived. And you'll remember, in fact, this entire section sort of ends in verse 1 of chapter 11, where Paul says to them, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. That's his way of sort of summarizing everything he said 
from chapter 8 through chapter 11. And if you want to back up even a few verses, there's a more extended summary when he says in verse 31 of chapter 10, whatever you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. This is Paul's call to them back from their self-focus, their self-indulgence, self-centered lives. He's calling them back from all of that by his own example and even the example of Christ. He says, follow me as I follow Christ. He's saying to them, this is what the gospel has taught me. This is what my understanding of Christ and the cross has taught me. Now follow in my example. It's taught me, among other things, not to seek my own advantage, not to be about my own rights, not to be about my own freedoms, not to be about my own liberties and my own luxuries, but it's taught me in all things to seek the advantage of others, their spiritual maturity, and in many cases, their salvation. Now, as we come to the end of chapter 9, Paul casts that calling in very vivid language. He draws on an image that would have been very familiar to the Corinthians themselves, the image of athletic competition. It would have been familiar to them because they had in their midst one of the most renowned uh, games or sporting events of the age. We're all familiar with, of course, the Olympian Games, which took place a few miles north in Athens, and they took place for almost 1,200 years uninterrupted from approximately 776 B.C. all the way to 393 when the emperor Theodosius brought them to an end. But for all that time, uninterrupted all those years, there were the Athenian or the Olympian Games. And their close competitor, if you will, was something known as the Isthmian Games. That is the games that took place on the Isthmus of Corinth, a narrow strip of land that Corinth was situated on. These were, these were rival games. And the Corinthians took great pride in these games. They celebrated them for the sake of their city and for the sake of their own name. And when these athletes would show up for these games every four years, they would, arri- they would begin practicing 10 months in advance, rigorous training. But the final month of their exercise, the final month of their training, they would relocate, much as they do today in the Olympics, to the, the, the city of Corinth, where the games took place, and they would conduct their final training exercises there in the arena or there in the, uh, the gymnasiums of the city, and they would be about the city. There would be the hustle and bustle and the excitement of the games building up. People would go not only to watch the sporting events, but they would go even to watch the athletes train. And so this was an image that was very familiar to them, this image of athletic competition, athletic training. And it is that image that Paul calls on here to draw out some spiritual principles. The image of those athletes in in their training provides the perfect uh, scene, if you will, for Paul to talk about the kind of sacrifices that he's been calling them to in order to win others to Christ. The kind of sacrifices that reflect true maturity, the kind of purpose and focus that 
manifest a true understanding of the gospel, the kind of purpose in life and in relationships that reflects the truths of what the cross was really all about and the truth that has taken root in your heart. And Paul, picking up on this image of training, calls them to run their life like a runner in a race, with a purpose, with a goal, with a prize, clearly in mind. Clearly defined goal, clearly purpose, clear purpose of winning. This is what he writes in chapter 9, verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Two main points, two main principles that Paul wants to draw out here, spiritual principles from the sports arena that, that really apply to our life, that really call us to a standard of maturity. The first one that Paul outlines in verse 24 through 26 is the need for a clear goal. Just like any athlete, and particularly like a runner, what he's saying to us is that we need to have a clear aim, a clear purpose, obtaining a prize, winning a race. That's what he's saying in verse 24. And don't read that as if somehow this is a race with other believers, that this somehow you are trying to garner for yourself accolades or drum up for yourself praise among other people. We're not competing with one another. That's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about the singular winner. What he's really talking about in verse 24, the point that he's really making is the sacrifice that these athletes make for such little opportunity of reward. That's what he makes. It's the point he makes here and it's the point he reiterates in the next verse when he talks about them doing all these things for a perishable wreath. All of this stuff, all of this effort, all this sacrifice for so little opportunity of reward. In other words, Paul's not picturing a race among believers all trying to, to gain the, the singular prize. He's picturing a race against opportunity, an enormous opportunity lest we miss the mark. And so he says, run this race that you may obtain it. Run so that you won't fail to hit the mark. Run so that you won't fail to get the prize. Run so that you will win, he's saying. Now you might be asking as he says that, win what? Win salvation? No. You look everywhere in Scripture and the Bible makes it clear. It is Christ who wins our salvation for us. It is His work on the cross that secures that for us. Another way of saying that is God is your biggest fan. He isn't some fair weather fan who's with you today and not with you tomorrow. He is always and forever and constantly on your side, rooting for you and crowning you a victor. Nothing will ever shake or change that. 
Because there's nothing that you do or don't do that adds to or detracts from that. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about winning the prize of salvation. He's talking about winning something else. And it's very clear in the context what he's talking about. If you go back to verse 19, he's already spoken about winning a number of times, four times as a matter of fact. Beginning in verse 19, he says he makes himself a servant of all so that he might win more of them. To to the Jews, he says in verse 20, he became a Jew so that he could win Jews. To those under the law, so that he could win those under the law. To those outside of the law, he became like someone outside the law so that he could win them. In other words, what Paul's talking about here when he talks about winning, he's talking about winning as many people as possible. That's essentially what he says in verse 22. When he says to the weak, I became weak so that I could win the weak. I become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. Paul's goal, Paul's purpose, in other words, in all that he did was to win as many people as possible. That included, as we've noted a couple of times, believers When Paul says he became weak to the weak, he's talking about believers there. He's saying that he, if you will, condescended. He he came down to their level. He, He took upon himself the kind of struggles that they would bear in their conscience for things that are unnecessarily burdensome to their conscience. He would he would condescend to their level. He would become like them so that he could win them from a from a status of weakness to a status of maturity. As he says at the end of chapter 10, he does all that he does to cause no offense to Jew, to Greek, or to the church of God. So part of this race that Paul's in, part of what he's trying to win, is he's trying to win immature believers to greater maturity. But then just as much, if not more, part of this is Paul trying to win unbelievers to faith in Christ. That was the whole point of becoming like a Jew or becoming like a Gentile to these various groups so that he could win them to salvation. And this was what he was all about. He did all of these things so that he might by all means save some. That was his goal. That was his aim. That was his single-minded devotion, which in his mind mirrored the focus of an athlete. A runner with a mind singularly trained on the goal of winning a prize. The difference between them and us, Paul says, is that they do it to receive a perishable wreath. They do it to to win some sort of garland, some sort of twisted reed. In those days, it was most commonly celery stalks that were twisted together into a crown, and so they would last a, a few weeks maybe before they soon faded, went away. Their rewards at the end of all their training was just that, some perishable wreath. But Paul says the prize that he was striving for, the prize that you and I ought to be striving for, is imperishable. It's the souls of people, the spirits and minds of people. And it is a rebuke that they would make such sacrifices 
for such an imperishable and such a passing prize that there would be such self-denial on their part and that we wouldn't make equal sacrifice, equal self-denial to see a soul one to Christ. And Paul's telling them, this is the way I live. This is why I make all these sacrifices. This is why I forego all of these pleasures. This is why I'm not concerned about what's due to me and what I deserve and all these things. As he's said back in chapter 4, this is why he endures sleeplessness. This is why he endures hunger. This is why he endures ridicule and disrespect from people all the time. This is why he's willing to be considered the dregs of all things. People looking down on him because of how he humbles himself. He does it all so that he can win as many as possible because this is eternal. This is eternal. It's not some temporal prize. He says over in Acts chapter 20, similarly to the Ephesian elders there, he says, I do not account my life as of any value nor precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry you ever see from the Lord Jesus Christ to proclaim the gospel. It's a shame that too many of us never approach our life that way. We're not like a trained athlete with his mind fixed on any goal. We are at best an occasional jogger who likes the feeling of a run every now and then. Or worse, we are spiritual couch potatoes whose whole life is oriented around our luxury, our comfort, and our entertainment. And that's all we do. And it's shameful. And that's Paul's purpose here. His purpose is to shame you and me and the Corinthians. His purpose is to shame us into seeing the complete incongruity of the fact that these athletes would deny themselves so much, would make so many sacrifices, all for something that is so temporal. And his goal is to shame us into realizing that we ought to be doing the same. Shame us that we don't. Or even worse, that some of us might actually make those kinds of sacrifices for goals that are nothing more than temporary. We'll rise early. We'll sometimes put in effort. We'll sometimes rearrange our schedule in order to exercise, in order to pursue some vain and passing goal, temporal pursuits. And yet we would never make the kind of effort to pursue eternal goals, the kind that Paul's talking about here. And so he brings himself back into the picture. In verse 26, he says, I don't run aimlessly. I don't run my race in life with no purpose. I don't lose sight of the prize. I don't forget the goal and the purpose. And the image is clear. A runner who has no idea what they're training for, where they're going, and so they never reach the prize because they never stay on course. 
they somewhere along the way, they veer off the track. Paul says, that's not how I run. Although he clearly thinks that's how some of them were running. How some of us might run. They live their Christian lives. They run their race, if you will, but they never understand what their goal is. They don't understand what the prize is that they're aiming for. And so somewhere along the way, they veer off course. Or maybe they never really knew what the goal was to begin with. They never set out for it. They're uncertain about their goal, and so they're uncertain about their priorities, and they're unclear about the sacrifices it'll take to reach the goal. They're unclear about how to run the race. I remember I was a young man. I used to run a little bit. Uh, a couple years ran track in college. I ran a mile and a, and a two-mile relay. And if you are a runner, you know those are very different races. You run them differently. One day I showed up to a meet and the coach called me over and said, hey, hey, come here. I'm going to put you in the, qu- the quarter mile, the, the, the 400. I thought, okay. I mean, I, I've never run that before, but I guess somebody was out that day. So he stuck me in there and I, I got in the, the starting blocks and waited for the, the gun and the gun went off and I started running and immediately realized that everyone was running this race much different than I was. And I needed to pick up the pace. And so I just just gave it all I had and just came around the first turn and around the back stretch and was just running with everything I had and thought that I might actually fare okay until the final turn and my legs just went to stone. And I just sort of whimpered across the last stretch and across the finish line. I realized I had no idea how to run this race. It's a very different race. It takes very different kinds of training. All these things a runner understands. He understands how to run his race. He understands how to prepare. He understands what kind of sacrifices he needs to make. He knows what kind of exercises he needs to do. He understands what kind of priorities he needs to set. He understands how he is to train himself day after day after day if he's going to win the prize. So Paul's saying don't run as somebody who doesn't understand those things. Don't run as if you don't know the prize. Don't run as if you don't know how to prepare. Run so that you can obtain what you ought to be after. Today ought to be a day of focus. Today ought to be a day of reprioritization. Today ought to be a day of once again setting your eyes on those eternal prizes. And Paul adds to that another metaphor. By the way, there in verse 26, he says, look, I don't box as one beating the air. I'm not some fighter who's flailing around but never landing a punch. Like some boxer who misses every time he swings. And you see a lot of Christians who are like that. They are flailing around all the time. Their lives are absolutely busy, absolutely full. And you ask them and they can tell you this last week, all the activity that they ever, that they've been doing. And yet you ask them basic questions about how they land their punches. When is the last time you shared the gospel with somebody? When is the last time you discipled somebody? And they can't tell you one punch that they've landed recently. They're just swinging and swinging and swinging, but have no idea at the targets that they're aiming for. 
Paul says, I don't do that. I don't want any punch to be wasted. I don't want to just swing at the air. The old saying goes, if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. I'm not sure why so many Christians live such aimless lives or set no purpose to win anyone to Christ, to see people matured. They take little aim to win the weak, to reach those who are lagging. And so consequently, because they have no aim, they have no priorities, they make no sacrifices. And Paul is suggesting here that at least part of the problem is that they never perhaps clearly understood what the prize is. There's a second part of this parallel between these athletes, the spiritual principles that Paul's highlighting for us here, not only the need for a clear goal, but the need for constant discipline. I mean, he's already pointed this out back in verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control even for a perishable wreath. And here in verse 27, he says, look, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Just, just to make sure you know that the opponent isn't someone else. You're not in a race. This isn't all about you doing better than the next guy. I remember being on a church staff one time and we'd show up to staff meeting and and inevitably somebody would give a prayer request or something about how they'd share the gospel with somebody and then and then someone else would say, oh yeah, and I share, uh, pray for me because so-and-so I talked to and and with some more heart-wrenching story or some more extravagant uh, uh, opportunity for sharing the gospel, and then somebody would follow him. And I couldn't help, maybe just my natural skepticism, but it always seemed to me like they're always trying to one-up one another. It's not what this is about. It's not about you being more evangelistic than the next person. The opponent is not some other believer. The opponent... Paul makes it very clear, is yourself. It's your own self. It's your own selfish desires. It's your own demands for self-indulgence. That's who you're boxing against. That's who you're running against. That's who you're in the race with. And Paul says in that respect, he disciplines his own body in order to keep it under control. He pummels it in order to bring it under control or enslave. It's a graphic language. The, Paul, the word Paul uses for discipline here is literally a word for hitting someone in the eye. Blackening the eye. He, Paul's saying, look, I beat my body black and blue so that I can win this prize. Bring it under control to the ultimate goal. That's your opponent. That's the one you're trying to beat. Trying to beat yourself. All those things in your life that would hinder you from becoming a winner of souls. Impacting hearts and minds for eternity. See, the greatest athletes, the greatest competitors understand this. They, they understand, or they reach a place where they understand this. They understand 
that when you step onto the court or onto the field or onto the track, that the greatest opponent you have there is yourself. That you, you're really there to measure yourself by yourself that day. The great ones understand that. The key determining factor of how you perform is not the person who's across the line or in the other track. The key determining factor in the race or in your game is how well you will govern yourself. And of course, great athletes also understand that that is not just decided on the day of the competition. That every time in the lead up, in the practice, every time you step onto the court, every time you put on the jersey, every time that you are doing the training, the exercise, you are there facing your greatest competitor that day, and it's yourself. He's there when you decide what to eat. He's there when you decide how much to rest. He's there when you decide how much to train. He's always there. The greatest competitor is you. That's your opponent. And Paul's saying, every great athlete must come to terms with that. And so they make sacrifices. They, as he says in verse 25, they exercise self-control. In all things, they voluntarily restrict themselves. They, when they want to stay up, they go to bed early. When they want to rest or sleep in, they get up early. When they want to stop, they keep pressing on with their efforts. They restrict what they eat. They restrict where they go. They restrict their schedules, the use of their free time. All those things, they do it in order to win this perishable prize. They do it because they understand that to hold on to all those things is to give up the prize. To think that somehow you could live your life and be all about indulging all your pleasures. You can live your life and be all about your own entertainment and your own enjoyment. You can live your life all that way and somehow still attain the prize is foolish. Great athletes know that the surest way to lose the prize is to hold on to those so-called rights and privileges and freedoms. And so they set them aside day after day and week after week and month after month, literally mastering their bodies, their appetites, their drives, their desires. Whereas most people maybe are content to be mastered by their bodies, these people become masters of their bodies. Paul says, I do the same. I beat my body black and blue. To the weak, I become weak. To those who are living under unnecessary restraints, I will live under those restraints for them. To the poor, I become poor. To whatever, I become whatever I have to in order to win them. I'll place myself under all kinds of restrictions. I'll, un, uh, I'll forego all kinds of personal freedoms. I'll lay aside whatever is necessary in order to be useful to my Savior. And you understand what Paul's talking about here, the context of what he's saying. Is not, he's not primarily talking about vices. I mean, that's almost a given. He's talking about things for which people could never legitimately call you into question. 
things that would, that, that would in any, almost anyone's book be considered a liberty, a freedom, a privilege. Those things which are in every sense lawful and right for you are the very same things in which you, if you hold on to them, they will hold you back from the prize. So Paul says he disciplines his body. He takes control of it, constantly beating it so that it can be most focused and useful on the prize. This isn't asceticism. This isn't somehow some strict, austere life for the sake of simply strict, austere living. This is a life that is bent on seeking no personal advantage, as he says in the end of 1 Corinthians 10, for the sake of the advantage of others. Paul says after he does all this, he, he does all this less after preaching to others, he himself should be disqualified. That is, after calling others to Christ and after charging them with the task of pursuing him and seeking him and after winning them to the Savior, Paul himself didn't want to be found as someone who veered off the mark, who, who had begun the race and then wandered out of bounds and became disqualified. They had lost sight and focus and become sidetracked or confused and disqualified. People wonder, what, is, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by being disqualified? Well, I think he means the same thing he means down in chapter 10, verse 12. Where Paul says to them eventually, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, Paul's giving them a warning. In fact, this is something of a transition sentence into chapter 10. He's giving them a warning that all of this life that you're living of self-indulgence, focus on yourself, no priorities for Christ. No priorities for the ministry. No sacrifices in order to share the gospel with anyone. No sacrifices in order to to disciple anyone. No laying aside of your own advantages for anything in the church or Christian. It may in fact be evidence that you aren't a Christian. Selfish indulgence may in fact demonstrate that you are not even a part of the race. In fact, this is the same way that Paul uses the same word, 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves, he says, to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves, or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless you, adokimos is the word, unless you are disqualified, unless you fail to meet the test. He's saying to them, you ought to see some evidence. You ought to see some evidence in your life. You claim to be a believer. You claim to be a Christian. And yet there's no taking up of your cross. There's no following Christ with any level of sacrifice. You aren't just lagging behind. You aren't just poorly running the race. You're disqualified. You veered off the pathway of obedience to Christ and love for others. You reach a point where you've done that so much... You call into question your own 
qualification, whether you're even part of the race. These people were filled with themselves, unwilling to give up anything on behalf of others. And so Paul's warning them, warning them that they may indeed be disqualified, or if they're believers, warning them that they may have lost focus on those prizes which are truly eternal. Let's stand together. We'll be dismissed in a word of prayer. I want to talk to you this t- today if you're here and you are not a believer. You're here and you, you know you don't trust Christ or you're here and you've told others that you do. In your heart, you know you don't. And God has been already at work in your heart. He's already been speaking to you this week, these past few weeks or whatever. You're here today. This is God's word to you. It's time for you to confess your sins. It's time for you to trust Christ. It's time for you to make the sacrifice, to get in the race, to take up your cross and follow Him. We want to encourage you that you wouldn't leave here today without doing that. That God is calling you to Himself. He wants to, he wants to carry the burden of your sin. He wants to give you eternal life. He wants you to be His own. I encourage you when we close in a word of prayer in a moment, if you'd find me afterward, I'd love to share with you from the gospel how you can be saved, how you can know God, have your sins forgiven. Father, we're grateful this morning for the reminder. We confess to you with heavy heart that our lives are not always prioritized, that we don't make the sacrifices, that it is a rebuke and a shame when we compare ourselves to those who give so much for such temporal rewards. Father, you've called us to eternal work. Help us to set our hearts and our minds back on the goal. To set our minds back on the prize. And to make whatever sacrifice we need. To set all the priorities we must in order to win the prize. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.